I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue Bible in the pew in front of you. And if you're looking on in there, it is on page 1111. So easy to remember. Just look for all the ones. So we are looking at Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, continuing our series through this book. And we are going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 11. Hebrews 1, or sorry, Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord." Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to tell you about the first and last days of my illustrious cross-country career. First day. First day was really hot. It was a late summer day, maybe about this time of year, going into my freshman year of high school. I'd never run very far in my life. I've always played sports, but never just short bursts. I was recently retired from my junior high football career. I finally figured out my stature was not uh, maybe the best for football, and so I thought maybe running would be a better endeavor. My friends all ran cross country, so I thought, I'll give this a try. So we met at the school and decided that we were going to run to my friend's house. He lived about three miles away. Yeah. Did I mention it was really hot? Okay. Now that distance for me that day seemed impossible. I thought three miles. I mean, I've traveled three miles, but never without wheels underneath me. But I thought, okay, my friend, 
he told me two things that day. Two things before we ran. The first thing he told me, I will always remember, he said, just keep running. He says, whatever you do, we can, we can go down, we can slow down as much as you need to or want to. Like, we'll, we'll I mean, if you got to, like, if this is our running, he says, we can do that. But just keep running. Don't stop. Keep going whatever you do because it's going to help build your endurance and it's going to train you that no matter how hard it is, you keep going. Like, all right, I got it. Keep running. That was the first thing he told me. The second thing he told me is that when we got to his house, the pool was open and there were cold Gatorades waiting. So there was a reward waiting at the end of this run. So I learned that day that the two keys to endurance are keep running and remember the reward, okay? And you know what? I am pleased to say I made it. I made it to his house. Now, it wasn't pretty, right? It was not something you'd put on a running instructional video, but we made it. I kept going. It hurt. We slowed way down at times, but my friends stayed with me, kept cheering me on, reminding me about that pool, and I kept running all the way to the pool. Fast forward, let me tell you about my last day of cross country about four years later. That year, my senior year, our team was good enough that we advanced to the, the regional meet. However, we knew that we were nowhere near good enough to advance on to the state meet. So I came up with a plan. This is how I thought then. If I can't be in the lead at the end of the race, might as well be in the lead at the beginning of the race. So at least I can say for a brief period of time, I was winning the regional cross-country meet. So I told people my plan, and I asked several people, I was like, all right, I want you to take a video, I want you guys to get some photos, like, make sure you see that I am in the front. This is going to be awesome. I wanted proof that I was winning, if even for a moment. So there we were, gun fires, and I take off. I mean, keep in mind, this race is 3.1 miles, but I'm running like it's the 100-meter dash. And I'm, I'm out there. And for about 20 yards, I am proud to tell you, I was winning the regional cross-country meet. At that point, if you didn't know me or didn't know my abilities, you might have looked at the race and thought, that guy, he's good. Like, this guy is fast. But there was no way that I could keep that up. And so I quickly faded to the back of the pack. Now, I did actually finish, but it was... Again, very not pretty. I was way near the back because I was exhausted. To make matters worse, none of the cameras that I had talked, the people I talked to, none of their cameras recorded it. I have no proof. You have to just trust me that I actually was winning. It was just a fleeting moment that no one remembers. So my first and my last days of cross country were very different. And they serve as good examples of what our author wants us to see in this passage. Here he reminds us that the Christian life is a race. And it's a long distance race. It's not a sprint. We do not want to run the Christian race like I ran my last race. We don't want to just have a couple good years at the start where we're following Jesus and it looks like we're doing great. But eventually we just get exhausted and drop out. We want to run the race all the way to the end. 
And so to run this race, just like my friend that very first day told me, we need to keep two things in mind. One, just keep running. Keep running. And second, remember the reward at the finish. The book of Hebrews is meant to help us not just run the race of faith, but to run it with endurance. That word shows up again and again in our passage. It's endurance. It's endurance to not stop trusting Jesus, even when things get hard, but keep running, keep running all the way to the finish line, knowing that a reward is waiting for us. So remember the context of our book. If you're just joining us, this, this letter is written to Christians who are being tempted to turn away from Jesus. They're facing pressures, possibly persecutions, sufferings, different things in their life that are causing them to consider, is it worth it? Should I, can I keep going? Should I keep going? And so our author, all throughout the book, is just like my friend telling them, just keep trusting. Just keep running. Hold on. Keep going. Back in chapter 10, verse 36, he told them this. He said, you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. you got to keep going, and there's a reward at the end. And then in chapter 11, we spent the last three sermons on chapter 11. He lays out this whole chapter of examples. He says, you want to know what endurance looks like? You want to know what faith that perseveres looks like? Here's, here's a whole list of people who've run the race before you. And they kept running all the way home. Now here we come to chapter 12 and notice the very first word, therefore. He's not starting a new idea. He's saying, hey, all that stuff in chapter 11, all those examples, they have a purpose. They're meant to have a purpose in our lives. Their examples are meant to lead to something. To make sure we don't miss that he's talking about them, he doesn't just say therefore. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, He's saying, look, because of all these people, all these people who kept trusting, because you're surrounded by their witnesses, I'm going to tell you something now, people. What does he want us to do since we're surrounded by these witnesses? Look there. He says, let us also, just like them, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and do what? And let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. In other words, follow their example. Keep running. So here, the Christian life, this life of trusting Jesus, is pictured as a race. And the goal is to finish. The goal is to finish, to keep running, keep trusting all the way to the end. And Paul, Paul loved to talk about the Christian life this way. In Acts 20, he he told us the goal of his life. These are Paul's words in Acts 20. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish the course. That's a word for races. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, Paul says, the goal of my life is I want to finish the race. That's everything I'm doing. You want to know what it's about? Finishing the race. And guess what? As he comes to the end of his life, listen to how he talks in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept 
the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul says, the goal of my life is to finish the race. He gets to the end, he says, I've finished the race. What do I mean? I've kept the faith. And now what? Now there's a reward that the Lord Jesus himself will give me. Friends, this, right at the outset, I just want to show my cards. (laughs) This is what we're after. If you want to know what we're after, what we want to see happen in your life as members of Chapelwood Baptist Church, it's this. We want to finish the race. To keep trusting Jesus all the way to the finish line. We are not interested in people sprinting out, looking really good for a minute. Say, wow, look at all the stuff they're doing. Look how involved they are. They've got their lives together. And then crashing and dropping out of the race altogether. We're not interested in that. We want to help each other keep running all the way. We're not interested in sprinters. We want marathon runners who are going to keep going, keep going. And it may not always be pretty. It rarely is. But we keep going. My goal as your pastor, and I mean this with every fiber of my being, is that I want to be in many of your hospital rooms, standing beside your bed, and I want you to be able to tell me in full confidence, Pastor, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is our goal. So we're not interested in just a momentary, quick, fleeting thing, like me running out in front of the race. That looked good for a moment, but it didn't last We're after a faith that perseveres and endures all the way to the finish. So we are to run, it says, with endurance. Notice verse 1 says we are to run the race that is set before us. As runners, you don't get to choose the course, right? You show up, you come up to the line, and you just run the one set before you. So as runners in the race of faith... We don't get to choose the way our life is going to go. Our course might be smooth. It might be hilly. It might have lots of twists and turns. It might be a really long course or it might be surprisingly short. Our course is set before us. So our calling is simply to keep trusting Jesus and running by faith through every twist and turn, through every hill and valley, in the race that's set before us until we reach the end. Not to say, I wish I had a different course. How come their course is shorter? How come their course is smoother? We run the race that is set before us. How do we do that? We see three ways here in these first few verses that we run with endurance. First thing we see is get rid of anything that slows you down. Get rid of anything that slows you down. Verse 1 says, let us also lay aside every weight. Now this seems self-evident, but he needs to say it. When you're running a race, you want to be as light as possible. You don't want any extra baggage, any unnecessary weight holding you back. If we're running a race, you don't show up to the race with your heaviest winter coat and your snow boots on. You don't have a backpack full of rocks and your pockets full of nickels saying like, okay, I'm ready to go. Now, you're probably allowed to do that. But why would you want to? Why would you want to? Those things just slow you down. They make it harder for you to run. And in the race of faith, the author acknowledges there's all kinds of things that can weigh us down. 
and hinder us from running after Jesus. And keep in mind, these aren't necessarily wrong things. He's going to talk about sin in a moment, but that's not what he's talking about here. These are good things that get in the way of us running after Jesus. They slow us down in the race of faith. They make it harder for you to keep following and trusting him. So what could some of these weights be? It could be all sorts of things. Could be entertainment. Could be that you're so preoccupied with the latest shows and and binging that one and keeping up with that storyline or you're constantly watching movies or you're just constantly being entertained, 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 entertained. Could be influences in your life. There could be friendships you have who are slowing you down from following Jesus. People who constantly are leading you away from Christ. It could be the influences of social media. Maybe you're spending so much time or taking in the wrong input that it's not helping you follow Jesus. In fact, it's slowing you down. It could be career ambitions. Perhaps you're always making your pursuit of Jesus take a back seat to your pursuit of a promotion or to the better job or to the bonus. These weights could be family. When you put our family ahead of following Jesus, that can actually slow us down. It could be sports. It could be politics. It could be technology or video games, hobbies or habits or house projects. The list is endless because it can be any good thing that we prioritize ahead of Jesus. And we need to be able to see what is it that weighs us down. And the thing is, it's going to be different from me to you. So friend, let me just ask you this morning to, to ask in your heart, what is it that weighs you down? What is the good thing or things that you need to say no to because you know they hold you back from pursuing Christ? Again, I'm not, I'm not, we're not having an argument about whether they're, they're good or bad in a vacuum. But in your life, you know that they hold you back from following Jesus the way you ought to. What are those things? See, the question we need to be asking ourselves about everything in our lives is not, is this okay? That's the question we usually ask, right? Like, as a Christian, is this okay for me to do? Is this okay for me to watch? Is it okay for me to go there? Is it okay for me to participate? That's the wrong question. There are lots of things Paul tells us that are permissible but not beneficial. So just like showing up to the race, you may be allowed to wear the winter coat and the snow boots with a back full of rocks. You, you're allowed, but why in the world would you do that? The question we want to ask is, does this help me trust and treasure Jesus? Or does it hinder me from trusting and treasuring Jesus? Not is it okay But does this help me? When I do this, when I go there, when I watch this, when I'm around them, when I participate in this, do I find my heart drawn to Jesus? Do I get more excited about him? Am I more amazed at the gospel that he would save a wretch like me? Do I trust his promises more? Do I want to know them better? Or do I find myself growing strangely numb and cold and distant, removed, Does this help me trust and treasure Jesus or does it hinder? Does it help me run the race of faith or does it weigh me down? Because our goal is we want to run the race and finish. Everything else is secondary. 
If you get every other goal in your life, but you don't finish the race, you missed it. The goal is to finish the race and keep the faith. Verse one goes on. It says, we also want to lay aside sin, which clings so closely. Now the picture he's painting here, they would have recognized, is of a long garment. Is of a runner trying to run wearing a long garment that would get tangled up in a runner's legs. So that's, he's saying that's, that's like sin. That's what sin does in our lives. It, it'll trip us up from following Christ. Sin gets in the way of our running. I mean, imagine again, you're trying to run a race with a long, flowy dress or, or fellas, you're in a billowy trench coat, right? That's, why would you do that? If, if you saw me doing that, you saw me out there wearing this big old long flowing coat trying to run and you said, hey, pastor, you should take that off. What would you think if I responded to you and said, but it's my favorite coat. It's so comfortable. I mean, it's, you'd say, hey, that's, that's great, pastor, but you can't run with it. It prohibits you from running. If you try, you're going to fall flat on your face. Now, that's ridiculous, but don't we do the same thing with sin in our lives? We know, and people come up and say, hey, that, you can't live that way. You can't have that in your life. And you say, but it's kind of my, it's just a part of me. It's, it's the way I am. It's, I feel comfortable. I don't, I'm not ready to get rid of this. It makes me feel good. It's a habit I can't break. But it keeps tripping you up. Keeps tripping you up. So again, the question is very simple and straightforward. Friends, is there a sin that you need to lay aside this morning? Is there something in your life that you know is wrong? You know it's displeasing to the Lord. But you still keep it close to you as you try to run. You think somehow I can still keep this sin close and run after Jesus. Are you tired of tripping over that sin again and again and again? Our call of our text is simple. It's lay it aside. Lay it aside and feel the difference as you run after Jesus. I mean, imagine that taking off that coat and realizing how much better this is, how much freer I feel, how much faster I can go, how much how much less burdened I am. That's the invitation. It's like, don't keep sin so close that it keeps tripping you up. Lay it aside. Lay it aside and run to Jesus. So lay aside anything that slows you down. Lay aside anything that trips you up. And then in verse two, you come to the third and the main thing we need to do if we're gonna keep running. Look at verse two with me. He says, run with endurance, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's the key to running with endurance? That's it. Looking to Jesus. This is the secret to how you keep running. And I want you to notice that this is not a one-time look. This is not when you're 12 at a camp, you say, I, look, I remember I looked to Jesus. This is a daily, moment by moment, ongoing, looking, looking, looking. That's why I love translation. The one translation says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Like you, you're just locked in on who Jesus is. He is the focus of our faith. It, it kills me to hear people who profess to be Christians talk about 
the life of Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian and Jesus doesn't get a mention? How is that possible? We're looking to him. He is the focus. He's what our eyes are locked on. And not just a general look at him. What is it about Jesus that we're looking at specifically here? What does it say Jesus did? He endured. How do we endure? We look at the Jesus who endured. And what did he endure? He endured the cross. He kept trusting his father, kept obeying God all the way to the cross. He endured the punishment that you and I deserved. He endured the wrath of God poured out on him in our place for our sin. He kept going. He endured. How did he do it? He despised the shame. To despise something means to think little of it, to to think of it as inconsequential. See, it wasn't just the pain of the cross that Jesus took for us. The cross was the most humiliating, shameful death imaginable. It was embarrassing. I mean, you, you had no dignity left. It was shameful. Not only that, but on the cross, Jesus bore the shame of all that we've done, of all that I've done. Think for a moment that if someone were to get full disclosure on your life, to see everything you've done, think of the shame that would come out. They're like, yeah, they find out about that. And they know that you thought that. And they know why you did that. All that comes to light. And it's just out in the open. No sugarcoating it. No defense. It's just all your sin on display for the world to see. And think about the shame that would come and then realize that Jesus bore all the shame for all his people on the cross. Even though he didn't do it, he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. Jesus took my sin and suffered as though he did. And so all the shame of what I've done was put on him. And yet, what does it say? He despised the shame. He thought little of it. He thought of all that he had to endure as nothing compared to what? Not just, he wasn't saying that it was nothing in general, but it was nothing compared to something else. Compared to what? Compared to the joy set before him. That's why he endured. Do you see that in the text? He endured for the joy set before him. The joy of finishing the course his father had given him. Right? Jesus is the one on the cross who said, it is finished. He's saying what Paul said, I've finished the race. I did what the father gave me to do and I've kept the faith. The joy of redeeming his bride. The joy of rescuing his people from sin and death. The joy of making us his forever. And the joy of being exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. That's where it says Jesus is seated now. At God's right hand, Jesus is ruling and reigning as the king of kings. And Jesus said, that's worth it. If I got to go through this shame and this pain to get there, to get to the right hand of the throne of God, it's nothing. But it's not just that Jesus is ruling at God's right hand. Because you know what else he's doing there? He's rejoicing. Psalm 1611 says this about God. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
That's where Jesus is seated. The place where there's fullness of joy and forever pleasures. That's where Jesus is right now. That's the joy set before him. He said, compared to that, the shame of the cross is nothing. He endured suffering. He kept running because he knew the joy that awaited him. So, how do we endure? We look at him. We look at him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The one who went before us into the heavenly places and offered the sacrifice for our sins so that we could join him there. Jesus didn't just go to the right hand. He made the sacrifice and said, hey, this is so they can come with me. I'm bringing many sons to glory. And this is how they're getting here. And not only that, he has perfected us. He has made us able to draw near to God through him. So no matter what we're facing, we lock our eyes on him, on Jesus, and we can keep going. When we're weary and can't go on, we look to Jesus. When we're confused and afraid, we look to Jesus. When the race is hard and our strength is failing, we look to Jesus. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. To him we lift our eyes, our glory and our prize. Why? We look to Jesus because only there do we find an answer for our sin. Only in the cross he endured do sinners like us find hope. We keep running because we keep looking. And as we look at him, we too can endure suffering. That's the point. We look at him and say, because of him, I can do this. Because of him, I can endure suffering. Because of him, I can despise any shame that I face for his sake. Because of him, I can endure for the joy set before me. The joy of being with Jesus in that place of full joy and forever pleasures. Now, if you're a runner, odds are that you get tired. At least that's been my experience. If, if it's not been your experience, do not talk to me about running, okay? I don't like you. I love you, but I don't want to talk to you about running. So as you run, you're more likely to get tired. And odds are, if you're honest as a Christian, there are times in your Christian life you feel weary. You feel faint-hearted. Like, I'm not sure. Faint-hearted means I'm not sure I can keep going. So if you've ever felt that way, verse 3 has a remedy. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why should I do that? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He says, the answer to our weariness and our weakness is to look at the endurance of Jesus. Because whatever we might be facing, our Savior has endured more for us. Our fight against sin, and notice that he's, he's talking about those facing persecutions and trials from people, but he doesn't say your struggles against people, your struggles against persecutors. What is our struggle against? It's sin. And he says our fight against sin might be hard. He says, but none of us has given our blood in that fight. But Jesus has. And he gave it as our high priest to free us from that sin so that we could run after him. That's how we can lay aside our sin. Otherwise, it's welded onto us. It's one with us. But Jesus came to break it free and said, hey, lay that down. I broke the chains that connected it to you. Lay it aside. And as our high priest, Jesus prays for us so that we can keep going. Just like he told Peter. He told Peter, Peter, I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. And Jesus says the same to each of us. He's praying for us that our faith will not fail. He's praying that we will keep running. So consider him. Look to him. How sure, how sweet, how strong, how vast the love of Jesus. That's our first key to running the race with endurance. It's looking to Jesus. But there's a second key in verses 5 to 11. The second key to endurance is thinking rightly about the suffering God sends as discipline. So we've been talking a lot about endurance. If you look down at verses 5 to 11, that word discipline is everywhere. I think I counted eight times in seven verses. So clearly, that's what we're talking about. In other words, the question that we're trying to deal with here in verses 5 to 11 is this. What do we do when the race gets hard? How do we think about that? When we're suffering and we're hurting, how do we think about those trials? This discipline of God, how do I process that? And our author says that if we're going to run with endurance, we need to remember four truths about that discipline. Okay, we're going to hit these pretty quick. Four truths about God's discipline. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Okay, now before we jump into these, we need to clarify this word discipline because a lot of us have distorted views of it. When we think of discipline, we tend to think only of corrective discipline or maybe even of punishment. We use discipline to mean like you did something bad, now you're going to have a consequence and that's discipline. And that can be a part of discipline, but that's hardly the whole of it. Discipline is bigger. Discipline is also formative Not just corrective, but formative. The word used here is the word used for raising a child to adulthood. It means all of it. Not just the spanking. It means the teaching, the instructing, the patience, the showing them how to do it, the exemplifying, and yes, the correcting. All that a parent does to take a child from a toddler to an adult. That is discipline. It means training them for the life ahead of them. Preparing them to be a mature adult. It's what fathers are called to do in Ephesians 6.4 where it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that's the kind of discipline we're talking about here. Don't just think of divine spankings here. Okay? You'll, You'll miss it. I'm not saying that's not part of this. It does include painful correction, But this is talking about all of the training and instructing that gets a child ready to be an adult. Okay? And the first thing we need to remember, he says, about this discipline is that discipline is proof of God's love. Proof of God's love. Did you see that in verse 6? Who does the Lord discipline? The one he loves. The one he loves. And you know what? You say, well, what, I wonder what Jesus says about that. Well, Jesus himself in Revelation 3.19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So what that means, friends, is that whenever we encounter hardship or suffering as followers of Christ, what we're experiencing is not a sign of God's condemnation, but proof 
of his love. And that changes everything. This discipline that you experience is coming from a father, not from a judge. If you are in Christ, everything that comes into your life, no matter how hard the discipline might be, is coming to you in love. It's all, there's no other motive. There's no anger. There's no wrath. There's no frustration or irritation. It's coming to you in love. And now there are three ways, he says here, that we can respond to that loving discipline. First, we can regard it lightly. To regard God's discipline lightly would mean we ignore it. God brings something into your life. It's meant to have an effect on you and you just think, ah, never, I'm not going to worry about that. I don't think much about it. Those who regard God's discipline lightly, they don't learn from it. They go through it, but then once they're through whatever that situation is, they go right back to living the way they were. Then, second way we can respond is we can be wearied by it. The first group thinks it's no big deal. They just brush it off, don't pay attention. The second group thinks it's a massively big deal. These are the people that when we see suffering, we see suffering as God's rejection of us. We see that we doubt that God has a good purpose in this. We think God must hate me because this is happening to me. If God loved me, I wouldn't go through this. Which isn't that what little kids say when they face discipline? If you love me, you wouldn't take that from me. If you love me, you would let me have that. Right? The writer says both of these, either thinking it doesn't really matter and not learning from it, and seeing it as a sign that God is against us. He said both of those. He says avoid those. Stay away from those. Those ways are wrong ways of thinking about God's discipline. So how should we think about God's discipline? Instead, we should remember that God's discipline is proof of God's love for you. He's already poured out his wrath against Jesus. Jesus took the punishment. So now, anything you've experienced as discipline is God lovingly training us, helping us to grow in faith the way a father does. Which is the second truth about discipline. Discipline, first I said a discipline is proof of God's love. Second truth we see is discipline is paternal. Paternal. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The fact that God disciplines us shows us that God is treating us as his sons. His discipline is paternal because he's showing himself to be our real father and showing us that we are really his children. He contrasts two types of sons here. Now, you've got to understand this is back in another culture. So back in this day, a son, and that's why he uses the language of son, not children, because he's trying to make a point here. And the point is this. A son back in this day would be the heir. A son would be the heir, the one who represents the father, the one who's kind of put forward and says, this is the one who bears the family name. He represents us. He shows, he, he reflects on me, the father. You see my son? This is the one I've invested my time and my energy into, making him into who he is. Look at my son. And he's the one who inherited all that belonged to the father. And so the father 
because of all those privileges, he would train or discipline that son to help him be ready for the life that awaited him as the heir. He says, one day, son, this is all going to be yours. And so my job is I'm going to get you ready. Ready to bear my name. Ready to take your place in the family. Ready to enjoy all that I'm giving you. So I discipline you, train you, raise you. Now back in this day, a man might have other sons through less legitimate ways. That's what he says. If there were other illegitimate sons, those, those weren't heirs. They're not getting anything. They might lay a claim to it. But he's like, no, like, you're not part of the line. And the father, because they're not legitimate, because they're not part of the line of succession, because they're not heirs, the father back then didn't really care enough to discipline them. In one sense, they could do whatever they wanted. But the bar was higher for the true sons. He says, you can go squander your life. You can go live, make horrible decisions. I'm, not, I'm less concerned. He's like, but you're going to be in my family. You're going to represent us. You're going to be the heir. And so, yeah, I am going to make you be trained. I'm not going to do that for them because they're not part of the family. They're illegitimate. But as a son, as an heir, I will get you ready for the life that awaits you. Because the father loved them and wanted to help them enjoy all that he had, he disciplined them. And when we think about that, when we can wrap our minds around that view of what discipline is, doesn't that transform our suffering? When we remember these truths, trials no longer should make us wonder if God loves us or wonder if he's rejected us. The fact that we're going through them instead shows us that this is discipline from a father who loves me. And again, I'm trying to emphasize discipline does not only mean correction. I'm not saying if you're going through suffering, there is something you can point to in your life saying, ah, this must be happening because I did that wrong. Maybe. But that's not all discipline is. God may just be doing it to grow you, to shape you, to conform you more and more to his image. So everything we go through, our suffering is showing that God is treating us as real sons. As our father, he loves us enough to train us even when it's hard. I don't put the hours into raising other children the way I do my children. The long hours of teaching and enjoying and shaping their world. And yes, disciplining them the way we tend to think of it. Correcting them when they do wrong. I invest hours, why? Because they're my children and I love them and I want them to be ready to be adults and enjoy the life ahead of them. And like every good father, God disciplines his children that he loves. And if he doesn't discipline us, it says, we're not really his children. Verse nine continues the same thought. Look there. He says, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we, not be, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. The author says, look, we, we know this. Like, we experience this on an earthly level. We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we recognize the goodness of that. We're grateful that fathers invested in us, and shaped us, and trained us. And if that's true, how much more, he says, should we see our Heavenly Father's discipline and submit to it? Say, oh yeah, I can see. I, I was thankful that my dad raised me. How much more should I be thankful that my Heavenly Father is raising me? 
And then he gives us two reasons why we should submit to our loving Father's discipline. And this is our third truth. God's discipline is perfect and purposeful. Perfect and purposeful. He says our earthly fathers, notice this phrase, they disciplined us as it seemed best to them. In other words, dads, we're trying our best, right? I think I heard a kid chuckle there. I don't know. (laughs) We're doing our best, but let's be honest. Earthly dads, we make mistakes. Sometimes we have sinful motives when we discipline. Sometimes we don't know what our child needs. Sometimes we go too far. Sometimes we don't go far enough. Earthly fathers, he says, they did their best. They did what seems best to them. But they're just people. They get it wrong. But God disciplines us in perfect wisdom. He never gets it wrong. Your father knows what you need. He knows what you need. His discipline is always perfectly fitted to you. Not a generic, I read this on a blog or in a book, so I'm going to try it with my kid. No, he knows you intimately. And he knows exactly what you need. None of our suffering is ever wrong. Never too much. Never too long. Never done out of anger toward us. And never meant to cause us ultimate harm. And never meaningless. Because God's wisdom is perfect. And his love towards us is perfect All his discipline of us is perfect. But not only is it perfect, it's purposeful. What's the purpose, it says? It's for our good. That we may share his holiness. In other words, as a child of God, nothing comes into your life that isn't for your good. And that's a big statement. But I mean nothing. I mean when the worst case scenario happens. You say, there's no way that's good. Yes, it is. Because God is a loving father. And his discipline, he knows what you need. He knows how to prepare you for the life ahead. He knows how to get you ready to bear his name and and inherit all that he's giving you. He never errs in his punishment. Everything that comes into our life is for our good if we are in Christ. God is training us to share in his holiness, he says. Another way to think about that, he is fitting us for heaven. He's fitting us for heaven. Every moment of suffering God sends is preparing us to live as heirs of his kingdom and to look more and more like him. So just like right now, I'm investing in my girls, trying to get them ready to be adults, to enter that world that's ahead of them, the life that they don't yet experience, but they're getting prepared for. God is right now getting you ready for the life that's ahead of you, that you're not yet experiencing. Yeah, you experience it in part, the way a child does. But one day, you will be mature. One day, you will inherit all that the Father gives you. And God says, I'm getting you ready. How am I doing that? Through discipline through loving, fatherly discipline. In other words, your suffering isn't wasted. There's not a day that you have to put up with that illness. There's not a day that that chronic pain that just the doctors can't explain. You say, what good could there be in this? 
There's not one more day longer with a strain in your marriage. There's not one day where you have to work at a job that just feels oppressive to you. There's not one day where your heart isn't ready to break over what your child is doing. There's not one moment of suffering that is wasted where God said, oh, I, I could have stopped that a day or so earlier. Every moment is working. It's changing you and making you more and more ready for the life to come. God's discipline is him getting us ready for home. Which brings us to the last truth about discipline. So God's discipline is proof of his love. God's discipline is paternal. His discipline is perfect and purposeful. And finally, discipline is painful, but profitable. Painful, but profitable. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I love this because the author doesn't try to minimize the pain of suffering. The Bible nowhere tells you, you will not feel pain. <laughs> it's real. It's honest. It says, for the moment, none of it seems pleasant. It all seems painful. But the key phrase there is, for the moment. For the moment. Discipline doesn't last. But what it does in us does. So what is discipline doing? Let's bring it to a close. Discipline is producing the fruit of peace and righteousness in our lives as we're trained by it. It's working good so that when we are in Christ, all our suffering is the perfect and purposeful working of our Father's love. And though it's painful, friends, it will be worth every minute. Just like Jesus endured because he saw the joy on the backside, and now that he's on the backside, he didn't look back at the cross and say, yeah, I don't know, I wouldn't do that again. That was that was a bad choice. You, will, you can endure everything that God puts in your life. And when you get to the backside, you say, every second was worth it. Now that I'm experiencing the joy on this side, I would gladly do it again because every moment is working for me. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So as we run the race of faith, how do we keep running with endurance? We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We lay aside everything that slows us down or sin that trips us up. We remember that even in the hard parts of the race, God is working his loving fatherly discipline to help us make it home and to prepare us for the life that awaits us there. So Chapelwood, let's keep running by faith until the race is complete and we stand with joy before the throne, home at last. Would you pray with me? Father, do this in us. Give us endurance. Where we, apart from Christ, can do nothing. We are weak and weary, but we have a strong Savior. And so help us look to him. Help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and let us behold in him all that we need to keep running with endurance. Where we ask that you would cause us each to finish the race. May none of us fall short of the finish line. And would we cheer each other on and remind each other of the reward that awaits so that we could together keep pressing on as we follow hard after Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said,